Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. Tom Bernard Joe with Hackmaster, Ralph W. Basham, MD. The host more often than Tom Bernard, Catherine Brandt. Oh, Andy <laughs> Brandt Bernard. Cassie Schrader. Welcome to the Catherine Brandt Show, ladies Thank you. And finally. I got finally. my due. You finally got your due. That was a shot. It was. That's all it is. Being married to her is one oh, big shot. That was mean spirit. His malingering got old. It keeps I'm you on your toes. Here we go. We will be right back. Part two, Tom Bernard Show. Doug Sprinthal, Walzer Automotive Group, Walzer.com. Tell us about this warranty for life thing. I, you, know, you know, you understand a lot more about this than I do. Well, of course. I know you're not an automotive mechanic. So let me tell you a cool story. This just happened a couple of days ago. I got an email. Somebody emailed me at Doug at Walzer.com, and he goes, Hey, I bought a 2005, and I think it was a Honda Accord, back in 2014, having some problems with the engine. Uh, do I have any coverage? So I called the Honda store. We looked it up, and sure enough, the card qualified for a lifetime powertrain warranty. So it had to be under 60,000 miles at the time of purchase, a uh, non-highline vehicle. And they covered the engine repair. Think about what that means. That's a 13-year-old car, and the guy got his engine replaced. It doesn't cover every single thing on the car, but all the, it's like major medical coverage. So the engine goes bad, transmission, four-wheel drive system. You're covered as long as you own the car, as long as you maintain it to factory standards. It's pretty cool. It actually is really cool. Well, I mean, it's a lot cooler than you or me. Well, it is really cool, though. Yeah, I mean, you know, 15-year-old car. And that's why I buy all my cars, and my family buys all their cars from Walzer Automotive Group, walzer.com, because of warranty for life. And you like working with me, too, right, Tommy? Tommy? Tom? I, I don't think he's there. <laughs> That's really nice. Very professionally <laughs> delivered from Walzer Automotive Group, walzer.com. Michael Bryant, Brad, Sean Bryant, what's the latest? Well, basically, we're trying to represent people who have been hurt and talk to them before they talk to an adjuster. Uh, one of the key points is to make sure you know what your rights are before you start talking to the insurance company and they start asking you questions or they try to settle your case early and cheap. Well, what's interesting to me is, you know, a lot of people have fear of attorneys. It makes them very uncomfortable. They get nervous about it. What should I do? I've known Michael for years and years now, and I would highly recommend you. So that should be good enough for everybody because I don't endorse people who are dirtbags. Well, I, I appreciate that. Um, but I guess the key is, is people think I'll charge them if I talk to them. Right. So a lot of people call me up. It's like, how much is this going to cost if you call me back? Like, you want me to call you back? How much will that cost? I don't charge people. The only way I get paid is if we recover, um, if we get money from the, the other side. And there's a lot of people I talk to that I never get paid for that are just part of giving them advice to make sure they know what they can do and what their rights are. And your record's terrific as well, we should point out. Well, it works. It's been good. It's been good, ladies and gentlemen. It's been good. And how do they contact you? uh, Either through our website, which is minnesotapersonalinjury.com, minnesotapersonalinjury.com, or at 800-770-7008. Michael Bryant, Bradshaw, and Bryant. 
Little Jimi Hendrix, Jimi Hendrix, and Janis Joplin. I was watching a special on Jimi Hendrix over the weekend. It was on like, the Reels channel. Uh-huh. Boy, the people didn't have very many nice things to say about his last girlfriend, I'll tell you that. Oh, really? Is that the one that, did she, like, make a mold of his yeah. member? Yes, she <laughs> Unit. Yeah. Apparently, and I heard she ran out of uh, concrete. Oh. Um, <laughs> so I heard, anyway. Um... Whatever do you mean, sir? People that worked with Jimmy said that she she tried to claim after he died that he he wrote certain songs for her and they know it's not true and that he he wanted her to handle his estate and it's like yeah okay settle down gold digger it's true the final panels of ninety five year old Stan Lee's comic book worthy life were lurid grim and disheartening the problems began shortly after the passing of his wife seven of seven decades Joni who Stan often credited with giving him the confidence to upend the staid comic world of the 1960s and conjure the modern superhero. After she died of a stroke in July 2017 at the age of 95, the Marvel creator found himself at the center of a tabloid frenzy with members of his rivalous inner circle accusing each other of theft, fraud, and assault. The guy's 95. Could you leave it alone? Shortly after uh, Jones' death, the power struggle erupted over who would care for the bereft, increasingly frail Lee, uh-huh. who, due to his advanced age, required full-time nursing care. Ninety-five. And uh, ninety-five years old. The first to briefly assume control was Jerry Oliveres, uh, a florist turned a florist turned publicist. <laughs> what? Mm. You know, I was a disc jockey turned banker, but don't tell Bilski <laughs> yet. Don't let Bilski know. Disc uh, jockey. Ver- Turn hedge fund manager. Your hedge fund <laughs> Give manager. Give me your money. Give me your money and I'll manage it for you. I'll put it in my hedge. That's exactly what I'll do. Uh, in any case, a florist turned publicist who'd worked for Lee's only daughter, J.C., and assumed the role of senior advisor after Joan's death, the new role which uh, handed him the influence over Lee's medical and legal affairs, soon drew suspicion among two other key challengers for the icon's effect, uh, affections, longtime road manager Max Anderson and memorabilia dealer Kea, or Kia Morgan, who, like Oliveres, styled themselves as Lee's surrogate sons. Mm. You're my surrogate son because you're worth about 800 billion. How much money was Stan Lee worth when he died? In it's got to be even several hundred millions of dollars. At least. Um, they don't know, but. They think somewhere between fifty and eighty million. That's all. Really, that's surprising. With all the movies that I mean, they had to pay him something for those. I don't think so. It just means everybody ripped them off. I think. It, I think oh. near the end, he does didn't really see a whole lot of. Yeah, he may have sold Marvel, and that was oh. it. He we saw he, he took his he took his uh, payout. Oh. Have you ever heard his voice? Yeah. No. He sounds exactly like Gilbert Gottfried's dad. Really? <laughs> Do you have any audio of him over there, Andy, that you can play, or is it hard to play on there? Like, well, I can probably find something yeah, he, yeah, eventually. Well, he had, he had, Let he had, me tell you something. <laughs> I mean, that's exactly that's, what he sounds yeah, like. That's exactly what he sounds like. Sounds like a villain. Gar- uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. That's what, no, uh, no, it was, uh, oh, he was in uh, Deadpool. Mm-hmm. He says, welcome to the stage. Chastity. Chastity. Yeah. He makes his cameos in all the Marvel movies. Yeah, he does, yeah. And he has filmed cameos for future Marvel movies already. Oh, has he? Yes. And eventually we'll probably end up CGI 
you know, him into the movie. Sure. But, yeah, I thought it was, you know, he was such a creative mind. I mean, I can't imagine. I mean, he he brought a lot of humor, more humor, I think, than DC to the comic world. Yeah. And I, I love Stan Lee. I'm a Stan Lee fan. Yeah, I understand I'm that. more Marvel than DC because DC is so dark. But <laughs> that was a joke in Deadpool, too. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. You're so dark. <laughs> the DC universe. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Army Hammer was blasted on social media for ripping celebrities who posted photo tributes to the late Stan Lee. Why do you care, Army Hammer? Because he's a malcontent. The Marvel Comics legend passed away on November 13th, prompting a slew of celebrities to share images of them with Stan. So he passed away this morning. Today's November 13th. Okay. That's a typo. You think it's a typo? I think he passed yesterday. Yeah, I, he passed I thought he yesterday. died yesterday. I thought so. He had pneumonia. So. Uh, so touched by all the celebrities posting pictures of themselves with Stan Lee, Arnie, uh, Army tweeted on Monday, no better way to commemorate an absolute legend than putting up a picture of yourself. Quickly, the actor's fans blasted him for taking a veiled shot at stars like Hugh Jackman, Millie Bobby Brown, Ryan Reynolds, Kaylee Cuoco, Kevin Smith, Halle Berry, and others, all of whom posted photos of themselves with Stan. They worked with him, one fan said implying that Army's argument was weak. Army replied, me too. And he put a question mark. (laughs) (laughs) I understand both sides. Some people care about that and some people don't. See, that's what we don't understand anymore in our society. You get to have two different perspectives. Doesn't mean one of you is right and the other one's wrong. Well, and the fact, okay, you have an opinion. Okay, you don't like it when people post photos of themselves with Stan Lee. Keep it to yourself. Why do you have to... Post about well, it. but I mean, you know, yeah. if he if, if he's unsettled by it, I could understand. You don't have to look at his Twitter page, right? Yeah, it, it's just weird. I mean, everybody has a negative opinion, and they I have know. to put it out there. Everybody needs to know how much it's I true. hate this. You're a hundred percent right. Uh, just just to chime in, I, so I was on Twitter. It's National Kindness Day. <laughs> Did you know that? <laughs> Good guess, luck guess, to guess you. Guess how many people are tweeting about it? Zero. It's probably what trending maybe six hundred tweets, nine hundred and forty. Oh, uh, that's so sad. It was a national I hate whatever day it would be. Everybody twenty million. million. Yeah. yeah, unbelievable. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, here it is. Or is it World Kindness Day? It's something Kindness Day. It's something Kindness Day. GQ Serena covers Sparks controversy. There is no controversy. You're making it up. Mm-hmm. Settle down. Well, there that's is pretty no much every controversy. controversy. It's imagined. Well, that's true. Because they want to be mad. That is very, very true. They just they, they want to be upset. You know, I, I suppose I went through a period in my life where I where I was all always upset, and I probably wanted to be upset just because it made me my life feel more important or something. Yeah. I'm at the other side of that now. I'm like, I just want to be happy. Be like last night, even though I was feeling not that great, the family came over and decorated the Christmas tree, and the kids were there, and Fawny was all excited, and fawn was all whipped up and wanted wanted andy to hold her uh the whole time basically which is great it was just a really really nice time nice don't people have those nights you know like when you and dave are together you can tell you really like being together yeah you know? we have we sit on i mean it's not like we have this exciting life i mean we oh, sit on, you sit on the you sit on the divan you yeah. have about a hundred children. It's always exciting. Yeah, there's <laughs> never a dull moment. <laughs> but I'm just saying, we're, you know, we just like to cuddle on the couch and watch TV together. We just enjoy each other's company. We should try that again now that I lost all that weight. Oh, 
We cuddle. Can, we to can cuddle, cuddle on, again. Cuddle on the couch. <laughs> Do you hear what she said to me? This <laughs> is what my wife said. What are these things right here? These two node things. Lymph yeah. nodes. Lymph nodes. They're lymph nodes. Thank they you. get swollen when you get a cold. Yes. Yeah. I said, Catherine, what the hell are these? I, this is weird. I've never felt this before. And she said, Oh, that's because there was fat blocking them. I did not say yes, that. Yes, you did too. I said you probably could never find them before. <laughs> oh, that's that's oh, much better. Yeah. That, that's much better. Pardon well, me. Well, it's true. You asked me. <laughs> I know. I love that when people ask you a question, they don't like the answer. No. Well, well, don't ask me. Well, you were used to be kind of a cow, so that might be it. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. Catherine. You're, Tom, you're a saint for living with Catherine. It's you're unbelievable. Yeah. Saint. Yeah. You're All saint. I do is Dear. give, give, give. It's all, it's just give, the give, long give. Suffering mister. <laughs> the long suffering mister. <laughs> yes, that's right. The long suffering mister. Yeah, these. Why do they get all swollen like that? I've never felt that's that. That's an before. immune system response. Yeah, just, that just uh, that's what happens. I got one that's been swollen for like a month, yeah. thousand years. Yeah. I was in medical school. I had one. On, I, I felt one. I was in freshman medical school. I felt one in the back of my neck. Oh, and yeah. I, I, okay, you know, you're going through medical school and you hear all the bad ones. Man, yeah. I, I had. I was. I, I was. I figured I had lymphoma or something. I wandered in. I got laughed out of there by the professor. That was a good humiliation. I know. I had one of those those scares, too, because I was on Humira. And one of the rare side effects of Humira is a fast, aggressive form of lymphoma. Oh, God. How comforting. Yeah, I know, right? Uh And I I got a cold, and I got a swollen lymph node in my neck. I mean, it was so big, it was bulging. And it was like that for three months. I ended up having to get a CAT scan because they have to check. Sure, they have to work it up. Because of the medication I was on. And so I was, like, terrified. I'm like, oh, my God, I have lymphoma. You're passing away. Ugh. That that hanging over your head is horrible. It's stressful. That, yeah. Oh, oh God, yeah. That is the worst thing for a patient. That Truly, that is the worst it thing. It is. Oh. You know, it's weird. In 1986, I think, is that when the, when AIDS really broke big? Mm, yeah, right, yeah, right, right, right around Mid-80s, yeah. yeah. In your mid-80s, 1986. But they were talking about the fact that you, you would get lumps or whatever, or whatever sure. the hell it was. And I had a lump under my right ear, so I go to the doctor. And he checks out and he goes, no, it's not a problem. It's it's not anything. It's just whatever those things are. (laughs) (laughs) Nice doctor. Lymph note. Lymph note. Okay, so so I, I, you know, whatever. I get checked out to see to make sure I don't have AIDS because everybody was, remember, everybody was going to die of it then. Yeah. That's what they thought. It was so bad. Well, they were. That was just it. They were. Well, they were until that was a miracle. They came up with all that medication so quickly. It really is. That was unbelievable that they were able to do that. But um, the weird thing about that is, one year later, the doctor who did the examination on me died of AIDS. Oh. Isn't that uh, how odd is that? That I go to make sure that I don't have it, and then he ends up. Having had it, then he he was dead like a year later. Uh, really great terrible. guy too. It was just terrible. Oh. Really nice man. Hate to see people die so young. You know what I mean? That's mm-hmm. right. But that's you know all doctors are scary, particularly plastic surgeons. I know they're, they're the scariest. Scariest <laughs> of the scary. Let me just say that. God, you know that that commercial I did. Uh, they asked that, that I talk about you and me being friends. Right. Um. <laughs> the way they initially wrote it, instead of, I said, well, you have a comment about Ralph? I said, yeah, this is my, my good friend, Ralph Basham, and the Cosmetic Surgery Center, all the rest of it. 
when they wrote it out, they left out a couple of words, so it said, my plastic surgeon, Ralph. <laughs> I'm like, okay, well, he has worked on a couple of things, but, but that's, uh, that's I don't know if I call him my plastic surgeon. You don't own me. You don't own me. No, that's very, yes, right, I don't own a plastic surgeon my of any kind. My nip and tuck, I always use Dr. Basham. Yes, that's exactly right. Well, you know, lose when I lost all that weight, yeah. I, I had... I had my skin ratcheted a bit, which is good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it all works out I mean, in the end. That's a common thing, especially when you lose weight. I yes, would imagine definitely. that well, that much weight. There's a guy on a Nutramost commercial right now. Not Nutramost, Nutrisystem. Yeah. He lost 245 pounds. Oh wow! I'm just like, what? whoa! You saw, remember? You were watching mm-hmm. with me last night. Yeah. I mean, he's standing there in that jersey. He's wearing like a basketball jersey or whatever. And he's standing there like this, and he shows him next. He lost 200. I thought it was a big deal losing 92.5 pounds. He lost 245 pounds. Well, look at those pounds. my 600-pound lines. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that's true. Some so, people are almost up at 700 pounds. Yeah. So when, when you were carrying extra weight, Tom, he lost one of you. Yeah. Yeah, he did. Yeah. Yeah, when I was carrying the extra weight, he lost one of me. Whoa. Yeah, that's true. Man, that's hard to <laughs> picture that. I Honestly, just can't God. understand how you can carry around that kind of weight and, still and not just drop dead well, of a heart attack. No, you're right. You, you're absolutely you right. Pick up, you know, pick up a 50-pound bag of concrete. Yeah, and walk around with yeah. that. And walk no, around with right. it. And he it had is, five of them. It's oh. hard to do. Holy well, he had five of them. Man. And the stress that that puts on your joints is unbelievable. It's astronomical. Oh, I can't remember the man's name, but at one time he held the world's record for dying at the heaviest. He weighed 1,200 pounds at his death. See, uh, how, how? And he, they had to bury him in a, pian- a grand piano case because wow. he wouldn't fit in a coffin. So Larry, <laughs> Larry, who married uh, Marie Stanley, yeah. <laughs> Marie Stanley's husband, Larry, uh, just after, you know, I'm in my later 20s now, so I started putting some weight on because I had stopped smoking and it was the hand uh-huh. to mouth thing and all that stuff. So Larry, Larry sees me. He goes, "Jesus, Tom, what do you got going? Do you want to be buried in a piano case?" <laughs> like, yeah, laugh it up, Larry. It's real funny, pal. God, yeah, he was buried in a grand piano case because he would not fit in a in, a, in any size casket. Wow, twelve hundred pounds. How, how much? You- how many cows do you have to eat a day to maintain twelve hundred pounds? Oh. Uh, it's probably eight or eight or nine thousand calories. I That's mean, it's all. Just, it, well, it's just, you know they're not moving at all. Right? I had that for so breakfast. So it's just sitting there breathing. Mm, yeah, basically. But that the amount yeah. of work it does to pump enough oh, blood. How much yeah. blood do you have that that heart of yours is pumping? Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, it's yeah, it true. Just as it. Oh, it just it's a fascinating amount. And when the, and people were confronted by how much food they're actually eating, it is. They they can't believe it. And they're always in denial over it. Absolutely. Well, whenever I whenever I was a resident, they that's a woman who carried extra weight, and I said, well, "How much did you eat when uh, before you lost weight? You a loaf of bread every night, a loaf of bread with butter with butter every night. A that's loaf, yeah. a, lot of a bread. loaf with bread but on every cut. That's not all she was cut. eating. That's it. No, well, no, she was eating more than that yeah. too. But that was part of it. But that's what she would a admit to. A loaf of bread. It is pretty damn good. Uh, might have that tonight. Actually, uh, a, loaf a, loaf. a loaf of bread okay. with butter. Let's, let's call Nutramost right yeah. now. <laughs> let's get a hold of Nutramost. A Nutramost uh, intervention. Bad thoughts. <laughs> yes, bad thoughts. Bad thoughts. That's all there is to it. We'll be right back. Tom Bernard Show. Sorry about that, Andrew. Isolating. It's probably good anyway. Okay, you ready? Mm-hmm. 
It's Tom with an update on my successful weight loss journey. I'm down 92.5 pounds, and I have the Sheehy Brothers and staff at Nutramost Twin Cities in Plymouth to thank. The Nutramost program is amazing. I lost over 40 pounds during each of my first two 40-day rounds. This is a program, literally, it's a program that anyone can do, and you'll have great success just like me because it is customized for each individual person, and the staff at Nutramost Twin Cities in Plymouth will be there for you every step of the way. Nutramost just wants everybody to live their healthiest life, so they're offering an early bird Black Friday sale for a very limited time. You, your family, and friends can receive 25 to 35% off the cost of a Nutramost program, and Nutramost will guarantee that you'll lose 20 pounds or more. Nutramost helped me change my life, and they can help you too. Health savings accounts are welcome, by the way. To schedule an appointment, call 763-333-7337, 763-333-7337. A program that benefits the homeowner and not the realtor? Do you want a guaranteed offer on your home? Hey, it's Tom with my realtor, Chris Lindahl, who has some exciting news to share. Hey, Tom, we are super excited to announce our guaranteed offer program. Here's how it works. If you qualify, we will guarantee you an offer on your house within 48 hours, which means you could be closing in three weeks. No staging, no cleaning, no decluttering, and of course, no open houses. This is your hassle-free way to sell your home. If you qualify for the program, you will get a competitive offer in 48 hours, period. Sounds like a stress-free way to sell your home. It is, Tom. Some homeowners want the convenience to be able to sell their home quickly without going through the stress of showings, open houses, and so many more headaches, especially if they found their dream home and need to sell fast. You do need to qualify for this program, but that's quick and convenient as well. To see if you qualify for the guaranteed offer program from Chris Lindahl Real Estate, go to chrislindahl.com right now or call 763-401-SOLD. Once again, that's chrislindahl.com, Chris with a K. Carry on my you know what I really like to do is we're talking about it earlier with Kristen Burt. I just love to look at each individual newspaper like you know Washington Post, WAPO reported that Tucker Carlson told somebody to F off and threatened to hit him and blah blah blah. And then at the very end they got to why he was doing it. It's because the guy called his daughter the big C and a whore. So they, they didn't put that at the top, they put it at the bottom. Most people never even get that far. They'll read the first paragraph and go, oh, God, the Tucker Carlson's so disgusting, I don't even want to hear anymore. That's right. That's what they do. All right, now CNN has sued the White House over last week's controversy involving reporter Jim Acosta. The White House revoked Acosta's press credentials after he rebuffed at an intern who was trying to uh, take his mic away as the reporter peppered President Trump with questions. Now the network wants a judge to intervene and restore his credentials, reports the Washington Post. There they are again, Jeff Bezos. He owns the Washington Post. The White House accused Acosta of placing his hands on the female uh, intern. And Acosta accused the White House of distorting what happened. Controversy also erupted over video of the incident. There is no controversy. Those two kids don't get along. They're never going to get along. Jim Acosta is a pushy jerk, and so is Donald Trump. Yeah. <laughs> so so what are you going to do? They're there, both pushy jerks. There it is jerks. in a nutshell. So there's nobody getting sued over this. You're gonna just... once again. You're gonna tie up taxpayer money in court over this. Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh God. They, so they honestly think they can win because they're that insane. They really are nuts. Again, your ratings are dropping like a rock because you've gotten so crazy on there. 
They really, I, I just, I've never seen anything like it. No, I really, on CNN? Yeah, it's yeah, just it's relentless. Well, it's Jeff Zucker. I, I've, I've been telling people that for years. That guy is a, is a nut job. He's crazy. Well, this Michelle Obama book that just came out. Oh, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot of people who are complaining a lot about her book because it's very negative. Oh, is it? Yes, it's very negative, apparently. And um, she says she's never, ever going to be able to forgive Donald Trump for all the harm he caused her family with the whole birther controversy. Well, said they, she said they, they put her family, he put her family yeah, in and danger. He's never going to be. See, these are the words. I will never be able to forgive him. God. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, don't, it, come on. And you know, it's always been that the previous, well, no. No family, uh, the presidential family, goes a- is supposed to go after the other families. Mm-hmm. That's kind of always been the decorum. It's really classless. The social that, decorum. Yeah. And she goes after Trump, and I guess she's very unhappy about all kinds of stuff. So She's been unhappy from day one. But see, once again, but though, it's like I'm sure, she, I'm sure she's going to make millions and millions and millions of dollars off this book, and I'm sure her publisher told her, be as negative as possible. Because nobody likes good news. Nobody likes to hear how you enjoyed anything or got anything accomplished that made you feel proud. It's right. all going to be how right. much you dislike stuff. Yeah, it's true. Yep. Well, one of the problems that, that that there is out there, and this is not for the ears of a couple of friends of mine or people that I work with, but all the other lawyers. <laughs> Let me put it that way. So you know who you are. You're off the hook on this. But... Is it any surprise that the Democratic Party is mostly, the politicians are mostly attorneys? Almost all of them are attorneys, you know. Really? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, no, I'm not surprised by that. Now, there are good attorneys, like, you know, Michael Bryant and Chris Madeline crew. I mean, they're good people. Sam Ellingson I've always liked a lot, too. But the, they, they say those things to stir up controversy and make money. Sure. That's how they've always made money. And that's how they're going to make money in the future. They just they they want to sue people like CNN. Yep. I uh, want they want to sue people. That's what they're going to. Oh, we're going to get the law. Well, unfortunately, you're wasting billions of taxpayer dollars on this crap. It's so interesting how childish everybody has I become. Know. It's terrible. I, I remember saying when I was a kid, if somebody did something bad that I didn't like. I'm going to sue you. <laughs> oh, they did, yes. Yeah, they did Remember, when you were a kid. Kids yeah. would always say they were going to sue each other. Yeah, we're yeah. going to get to you. We're going to sue you. <laughs> yeah. Only in America, though. Yeah. yeah. Only in Only America. America. Because I tell you what, if I, if I had my lawyer's fees paid for every case I've ever won in court, I would be a billionaire. Honest to God. If, they, if, if the person brought the charges had to pay the attorney's fee. And the... And that's the thing is that the, the defense counsel, defense attorneys, they love it too because they're getting paid. So everybody's all the lawyers get paid. So yeah, I know. And then whatever, like I said, there's a handful of people that are outside the deal here. Uh, that's right. That we're not talking about. I'm thinking about including Michael Bryant. So. Yeah. No, I'm just. Yeah. We have <laughs> Sam Katz on the phone. Oh, Sam Katz, ready to go? Mm-hmm. Excellent. Yeah, I just, I guess what we're talking about here today is, I, I just. Would like everybody to calm down. That's all I'm asking. Just dial it back. Calm down a little. Everything will be good. Evil Catherine says you first. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, honey. <laughs> Samuel M. Katz, how are you, Samuel? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on. It's our great pleasure. Beirut rules the murder of a CIA station chief and Hezbollah's war against America. Uh, Samuel, is it okay if I just call you Samuel? You want to be called Mr. Katz? Sam. 
Sam's good. Oh, just Sam's good. Okay. Um, do, does the average person who knows the name Hezbollah, does the average person even know who Hezbollah is when they read a story uh, about Hezbollah? Do they do some research to find out who Hezbollah actually is? Do they know what the war against America is all about? Or, or does the average citizen have no knowledge of any of this? Um, I fear I to say that the average citizen has very little, if any, knowledge about Hezbollah, which is strange because up until 9-11, Hezbollah was responsible for the deaths of more Americans than any other terrorist group um, in the world. Um, Hezbollah has become a proxy army of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard and has presented a clear and present challenge to United States and Western interests in the Middle East and around the world. They have taken the war outside the region and propelled it against uh, our targets, Western targets, Israeli targets, um, as a way to keep the revolution constant, flowing, and to always keep their enemies on the defensive. You see, that makes complete sense to me. There's no. How did you get involved with this? No, uh, in the first, how, did you just gain this knowledge years ago, and and that's how you got so involved in the story? I've been writing about special operations and counterterrorism oh, for over thirty years, and um, I've I've had the the privilege and sometimes the challenge of traveling to many of the world's hotspots and seeing firsthand how people from government agencies, military units, and law enforcement agencies handle the war on terror on the front lines. And uh, the, my co-author, Fred Burton, who is a former State Department agent, um, has been a friend for well over 20 years. And Fred Burton um, was involved in the capture of Ramzi Yusuf, the World Trade Center bombing mastermind oh, yeah. Yeah. in Pakistan. And several years ago, we, we co-wrote a book about the attack on Benghazi. And we wanted to do a follow-up. And we like, we like to feature stories about American heroes that sometimes go, um, go beneath the radar of public consciousness. And William Buckley was a hero a, a, a Silver Star recipient, a CIA um, officer, a brave man who, 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 who perished a horrible death because in many ways we were at the time learning about the Middle East and the threat that it, it presented to us. And sadly, on many levels, we still haven't learned those lessons. And we continue to fight the war, usually uh, with one foot in the ditch, um, not really understanding what we're up against. You know, Sam, something just popped in my head, so forgive me because it just, what you were just talking about, forgive me because I, I have not thought about this in many, many years. What was the airplane hijacking? I believe Jimmy Carter was president at the time. Do you know what I'm talking about? That, uh, that uh, um, terrorists... Uh, abducted one of our airplanes. They they hijacked an airplane, an American airliner, and the word that I had gotten from from everybody about that was it impressed upon the the terrorist world. Well, no matter what you do to the Americans, they don't really do anything to you. They don't fight back. You remember that story? How many many years ago? Forty years ago, something like that. Well, there are many hijackings. I think perhaps what you're thinking of is the hijacking of TWA eight four seven. 
that was hijacked um, over the Mediterranean, and Ronald Reagan was the president. And Ronald this is, Reagan, okay. Um, precisely in the this is precisely in the period that we uh, we cover in the book because Hezbollah seized the aircraft and they murdered in cold blood a U.S. Navy diver who was traveling on a military right. ID. Right. And and. And they beat him to death, and they threw his body off the aircraft onto the tarmac at Beirut International Airport. Yep. And, and, and I think one of the lessons that was learned, and it's a lesson that it could be debated if we have completely fathomed it and mastered it, is that very fast-moving terrorist events sometimes can't be handled quickly. They even though we have hostage rescue forces and the and and the units are trained and poised and equipped and ready to go, there's always a political decision that goes into um, deploying them, and by not reacting forcefully, by not reacting sometimes intelligently, by not really thinking the response through, we not only undermine efforts to solve the issue that has been presented to us, but we create a whole host of new threats, a whole host right. of new dangers that, that just uh, metastasize. And one of, one, of the, one of the objectives of the book was to look at the America's wars in the Middle East through um, the big picture through small eyes and look at the events that are taking place today and that took place 35 years ago through the eyes of this one station chief who, um, against all odds and against the rules of engagement, found himself abducted and tortured to death. What an amazing... Oh, by the way, quick aside here. Well, it's not an aside, because it's a compliment, actually, I hope. I love the Ghost Warriors. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Oh, it's true. Uh, it's, um, uh, Israel's undercover um, operations um, are once again in the news. Yeah, and, right. Um, and they uh, they might precipitate um, a mission gone bad because sometimes missions do go bad. It, it might have been the spark that um, causes the next Middle East conflict. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. There's a little unrest uh, going on uh, yesterday, today, from what I understand. Um, so Beirut rules, the murder of a CIA station chief and Hezbollah's war against America. What is it specifically about? Why isn't it Europe? Why isn't it America? Because that's where all the money is. That's where the power is. Is that what this is all about? Oh, we are the, um, we're the big boys on the block. If you want to prove yeah. yourself in the major leagues, you want, to, you want to shag flies in center field at Yankee Stadium. I think, I, I think that one of the reasons why us, why the United States, is on many levels, we're the only country that matters to a right. lot of people in the world. Right. And uh, as prominent as the European nations are, or maybe once were, um, over their old colonial um, territories, the U.S. dollar, the U.S. culture, the U.S. might is, is, really, a, um, is really a magnet. It's a magnet for goodwill, it's a magnet for jealousy, and sometimes it's a magnet for, for anger. Um, many, many of um, U.S. interests in the Middle East are for the best of intentions, um, to help shore up our foreign policy, to help support our allies, to help our economy, and even sometimes to promote democracy. But one of the shortcomings that we have is, is sometimes our interests, coincide and collide with realities on the ground and realities that right. have existed for hun hundreds and thousands of years. 
and, and failing to understand that once in this delicate balance of oil and water, um, w- once, once you introduce a third agent into the mix, the chemical reaction can sometimes be incredibly combustible, and sometimes it can explode and set you on fire. And, and many of our political leaders um, sometimes haven't figured out a, a response plan in case um, the things go wrong. And when things go wrong, they go wrong really fast. Sam, is it fair to say, or at least consider, that World War One and World War Two could probably not have been won by the quote-unquote good guys unless America had gotten involved? Certainly World War Two, it would seem to be the case, and I think World War One as well. By, by doing that, by coming in late to World War II and then turning the war around, because Hitler was doing, um, uh, he was very, very close, uh, but by jumping in there and, and basically saving the Western world, uh, you know, well, I can't say the Western world because obviously Germany is in the Western world, but um, saving democracy for the people. Do you think by, by jumping in so late and then really winning that war, we brought attention to ourselves like they are the people to go after that? If they're going to be doing things like that, if they jump in at the last minute and still win, they've got the strength that we need to bring down. Is that part of it as well, do you think? I think that people around the world um, looked at the United States as a savior. Yep, right. And it, 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 it was an awesome, it is an awesome responsibility that people in power have. When, um, when, when there are civil wars, when there are genocides, when there are atrocities, People don't really look for France for, say, um, for safekeeping, no, no. and they don't look for Great Britain, and they don't look for Germany. It's always the stars and stripes, and it's something that, that we as a nation should be incredibly proud of because um, it's being, a, being a, a beacon of light, a beacon of freedom for the rest of the world is, is, is stature. It's something that, peop- that was paid for in, in, in blood and, and the lives of the greatest generation. However, that responsibility sometimes creates problems, and that responsibility puts you center stage. And there are always people that want to um, hit the biggest and the brightest as we are. And um, because we're so extended around the world, from everything from Coca-Cola and McDonald's to our embassies that are now fortresses, we we are a tempting target. It is a wonderful thing. Um, do you do you have more time, or do you do you, do you, have you run out of uh, interview time, or do you have a, a few more minutes? I need to take a very quick break. If you could come back for a few more minutes, that'd be great. Yeah, I'm here. Excellent. We'll be right back. More with Samuel M. Katz, Beirut rules the murder of a CIA station chief and Hezbollah's war against America. Got a lot more to talk about right after this, Tom Bernard show. Tom Bernard here to tell you, Priority Courier Experts has immediate openings for drivers looking for more. Priority drivers are independent contractors who set their own hours, start from their own driveways, and deliver local on-call parcels and freight, which means you're home for dinner every night, and you get paid weekly. Right now, Priority's driver-friendly lease-to-own program has brand-new dock trucks, flatbeds, curtain sides, and tractor trailers just waiting to be driven home. 
And Priority is also offering a $4,000 sign-on bonus to qualified drivers. So if you've got the skills, we can get you qualified to start driving a brand new truck in as little as three days. Calling all drivers. Come get the $4,000 sign-on bonus you deserve for all the knowledge and experience you bring to the delivery business. Call our fleet reps right now at 651-748-4477 or visit them online at Priority.com. Priority Courier Experts. Every time you call us, we deliver. Tom here for Sabre Plumbing, Heating, and Air Conditioning. Right now, Sabre and Bryant are teaming up to offer 0% financing for 36 months when you buy a new Bryant furnace. This is the perfect time to replace your old furnace with a new trouble-free, energy-efficient furnace from Sabre. And when you buy Bryant equipment, you're getting one of the most trusted names in the industry. This 0% offer is available for a limited time. Call Sabre Plumbing, Heating, and Air Conditioning to find out more, and please tell them that Tom sent you. Saber and Bryant, whatever it takes. We are back, ladies and gentlemen. The book is called Beirut Rules, the Murder of a CIA Station Chief and Hezbollah's War Against America. Samuel M. Katz, our special guest. Thanks for coming back for another segment. Uh, um, and if you do, do need to go at some point, let me know. Otherwise, it'll be about you know a 10 to 15-minute segment, if that's okay, Samuel. Yeah, I'm I'm here. Because there are a lot of other people in studio that I'm sure would love to ask you questions about the situation. Uh, what I'm fascinated uh, by right now, Samuel, is what's your background? Where where were you born? Where'd you grow up? I'm born and bred in New York City. Um, my parents were um, um, escaped the Holocaust and made it to Palestine oh. before it was Israel. And from Israel, they came here. And I spent um, quite a bit of years in the Middle East and was always fascinated by terrorism and especially the power that one criminal act can, can achieve on ruining the lives of so many people. And I decided that I wanted to do this full time right after Pan Am 103 when there was um, here at JFK with the parents of a lot of the Syracuse University students were, um, were waiting for their um, kids. Um, they had to be informed that the plane had gone down. And I remember the anguish of the parents, but more, but more importantly, the, the absolute um, helplessness of a Port Authority police officer who had tears in his eyes as he saw the, the suffering. And this was a, um, a topic that fascinated me because how could um, political aim, how could the violence in order... To, to avenge one country um, ever, ever, ever be used to justify the murder of innocents and especially the murder of um, women and children. Have you found any answers? Yes. Um, the one thing that I've come to a conclusion is that terrorism, for the lack of a better word, is a business. Uh, and okay. this is what that's interesting. And this is what certain certain people do. Years ago, the business was was fueled by ideology. It was fueled by um, right wing or left wing um, beliefs. And then religion became a very convenient um, gasoline that you can put in the engine. Um, if, if you look, if you look at all of the terrorist organizations that exist today, um, the one common thread is money either oil revenue, territory, um, prominence. The, the heads of Hamas 
who, who are in control of an organization that is based in Gaza, one of the poorest spots on earth, fly around in Gulfstream jets and they, um, they sleep in Qatar and the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in the presidential suite. Life is good for them. Um, the money trickles down. There is an enormous business involved in financing this, and it keeps a lot of people employed. And it's sad to say, and yes, religion you know, is, is, is the faith is, is, is what, um, on the surface, is what brings a lot of people to bear. But if you look at ISIS as well, um, what, what attracted a lot of individuals from um, the European volunteers, for example, was the fact that people who were really rendered to be um, almost invisible in their society, um, second-class citizens, were all of a sudden offered a gun, a woman, and most of all, a steady paycheck. And that attracted them. And then when ISIS began to lose its ground and lose its territory and lose its oil revenue and the money dried up, people went home. Uh, how, how, okay, so... There's all these well. There's all this wealth behind terrorism. I understand that. How is it a cultural thing that the people that are actually committing the murders of basically mass murders uh, that they're so desperate that they'll do anything for the cause, or are they convinced that it's a religious um, path to nirvana or whatever you want to call it? Well, it's funny. I, I I did a project about terror finance and an effort to stop it. And if you look at, at from a business perspective, the um, the suicide bomber, the guy pulling the trigger, is the lowest and the cheapest mm-hmm. element in this equation. Sure. Um, there's the big boss, the CEO of of the terror group, and he he's living high on the hog. And then you have his operational people, his political people. They're living well. They get to send their kids to school overseas. It trickles down into their military commands and their top lieutenants. And they, they have bodyguards and they operate well. And they don't have to worry. Their, their families are taken care of. And there's all this money spent on safe houses, explosives, armaments, propaganda, video, um, in, internet and social media. And, and the poor kid or the poor woman who's going to strap explosives to their chest and walk into a supermarket or into a bus and blow themselves up. Um, they're the simplest. They're the ones that are convinced that is the religion that um, okay. will reward them. When ultimately it's a, um, they're a pawn, and in often cases a hapless pawn, in a very, very treacherous um, political and economic system. Is there any way to get that message out to the general population so that they would know that? Well, the general population isn't the one that we have to be worried about. I think what we have to do is figure out a way to bankrupt these organizations and take away... You might never... uh, In this country, there's a disease um, of why don't they love us? Yeah. And you're never going to get people to love everyone. You're not going to get people to love the United States. Um, I think we see politically that even among ourselves, we don't love one another. No. However... If you, take, if you take away the means by which they can um, orchestrate very large and elaborate plans and, and you can bankrupt that or make it so expensive that it's not worth it, then you, you'll never eliminate the violence because we see today there's stabbing attacks and ramming attacks with vehicles. But you won't 
you won't have the type of attack that you saw um, three years ago today, actually, in Paris, in which 130 people are killed in multi-pronged, highly sophisticated um, operations. And I think that's, that's the objective for law enforcement and the intelligence community. Okay, now you've figured that out. Why hasn't the government figured that out and done that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I'm, well I'm, I'm sure that um, they have, but if you want to be incredibly cynical, um, the business of terrorism um, isn't as good as the business of counterterrorism. Mm -hmm. Oh, jeez. If, if, you, if, if you look at the resources that are invested in, in a multitude of security and, and overseas operations, um, it's, it's, it's mind-boggling. I, I had a conversation with a former intelligence officer in the Middle East, and he once asked me, he goes, have you ever tried to figure out how much money has been spent on security um, after 9-11? From airport, devices, gates, you name it. Um, that, that money that money on the same kind of parallel is never spent in healthcare or in the automotive industry or things of that nature to keep the same amount of people who lost their lives on 9-11 um, safe um, in the future. So I, there are all sorts of forces always at work that prevent a very pragmatic and a very common sense approach to, to counterterrorism. And also, sometimes our national interests are deemed by government officials, for good or for bad, as, um, as, as, as vital to um, national interests, or as Henry Kissinger once said, for the greater good. And sometimes that greater good, um, for, at the moment, might be seen as the correct thing to do, but might later on cause a, a ripple effect of problems and violence that is very, very difficult to, um, to maintain and control. You know, we've been talking lately about, and, and, and uh, maybe you guys brought this up while I was, I was called out of the room, but um, <clears throat> there's a lot of talk, of course, in America about global warming and how we need to start uh, depending upon electric cars instead of uh, oil and gasoline. Um, if we ever do get to, to a society in America of, of everyone driving an electric car, what would that do to the economy of Saudi Arabia? Because don't they pretty much rely solely on, on export of oil? Yeah, but you can burn oil to make electricity. <clears throat> right. But, I mean, it's got to impact. If we don't have – how many cars are there in America? I don't even know. I have no, I have no idea. Millions and millions. Yeah, millions. a lot. But, but that's got to be – the Middle East would take a huge hit if we ever turned to electric cars solely, wouldn't they? Well, you mentioned global warming. The one element of the current government, the current um, people in Washington that recognize global warming as a national security threat is the Pentagon. Right. And they're really the only one from an infrastructure perspective um, for this country, as well as for interests overseas. And I think that some Middle Eastern nations... Um, are trying to consider what happens the day after, yeah. the day after somebody invents the um, the engine that runs on um, on on water or some other um, resource, electricity, or solar power, and um, the the sands, no pun intended, um, would shift dramatically. And I and I think 
that a lot of what's going on in the Middle East today that is kind of on the guise of the Sunni-Shia um, rift, the war between the Gulf states and Iran, so to speak, are kind of to see who later years to come is going to control the Middle East. And the oil states are nervous. Yes, um, the oil right. states, in many cases, have squandered the greatest national natural resource oh, yeah. that um, could ever have been bestowed on a, on a parcel of, of the planet. And uh, I think that people are, are quite concerned. And uh, it, it's, it's not a part of the world that is going to attract high-tech industry. No. It's not a part of the world that's going to attract um, because they're years behind, because they've they've relied, they've relied on buying um, the the best and the brightest from the rest of the world, um, and and this is I think if if you want to look in, in a very circumspect uh, circumspect um, uh, vision of it, I think it's why that many in the Sunni world at the moment, as well as for strategic reasons, have cozied up to Israel, because Israel yeah. never having had um, natural resources in in plentiful supply. Um, went to high tech, and now Israel, the startup nation, provides high tech solutions um, that can be found in, in every device, in every facet of what we do um, in the world today. It's made the country's economy boom, and that's not dependent on a natural resource. It's dependent on innovation and imagination. And um, the, the Middle Eastern nations, the people who we're embedded in, the, the, the nations on whose um, on whose survival and on whose um, safety our national security depends on, will find themselves in a precarious position um, very close down the road. Magnificent conversation today. Sam, I appreciate your time today. Samuel M. Katz, Beirut rules the murder of a CIA station chief and Hezbollah's war against America. I learned a lot today, Sam. I appreciate yes. your time, sir. Uh, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. It's our pleasure. Samuel Katz, ladies and gentlemen. Um, we can take that two minutes from the second segment and put it on this segment, right? Because on uh, it went se the, the, the second segment went 17 minutes. I suppose we could do that. Do you want to do that? Is that, that a lot of work? No, but it might not sound as great. Yeah, I don't care. I'm on, <laughs> I'm on the show. It doesn't sound that great at it. <laughs> oh, we can talk it out. That way you, you'll have an option. But, I, see, I think all of the – he's a very bright guy. Yeah, when you were having your coughing attack and had to leave the room, he was talking about how terrorism is such big business. Yeah, yeah he, he had just introduced that. Yeah, it's, it's just fascinating that – and that and so I asked the question. I'm like, okay, well, you know, what, if you figured that out, why hasn't the government yeah, I was and done some – Oh, you were back for that. Okay. But no, well, I, well, I haven't Counterterrorism is also big business. No, it's a bigger business. In it, fact, it's, it's just, probably an organ of magnitude bigger. It's a horrible that every single thing it's about it, money. is about everything. money. It, everything's so, about money. You know, you want to say, oh, I don't matters. want to be cynical. But if you're not cynical, you're not capable of seeing what's going on. Yep. It's yeah. terrible. If you're not, yeah, it, it's absolutely true that the whole thing is disgusting to me. Everything you look at, whether it's television news, radio news, newspapers, magazines, the terror industry, which is what it is. And, and, and that we, we talked about earlier. That's the hate industry. Yeah, it's it the is. hate industry. It absolutely. Yeah. Everything's about hate. Everything's about disliking. Yeah. Everything's about saying what's wrong yeah. with you. 
It's a hate. It's the industry of hate. Yep, it's the sure overall is. thing. And the United States has fallen for it 100. percent By the way, I should mention we only have 20 seconds left, but I'll mention that I bought one of the first Teslas in America. As a matter of fact, it was I think the first or second one in the state of Minnesota. And one of the options I had, by the way, was a solar charging station, so I would not have mm. had to use electricity. I could. I had a. I had an option to get a solar charging station. I'm, I'm sure in, it was like $50 million. But living in Minnesota, probably not the best. Well, that, <laughs> well that's the other <laughs> that thing, too. That's why I didn't go down that road. There's not that much sunshine no, in Minnesota. But no. I don't know, man. The Middle East can have a lot of problems if that happens, yeah, I would guess. True. Especially if, Ralph, you go your route or you talk about self-driving cars. But if they're charged by solar power, the Middle East has got a lot of problems coming their way. And it's not going to be pretty. I will tell you that. Yep. We will talk to you later, Tom Bernard Show.